Hi, I'm Michelle Ward. As a mom, I've looked my children in the eyes with love and hoped I can lead them toward a bright, wonderful future. But as a neurocriminologist who's been studying violent crime for the last 20 years, I've also quietly hoped that at the very least, I'm not raising a future serial killer. And if you can relate to that taboo thought, congratulations, you've just found your new favorite podcast. This is How Not to Raise a Serial Killer. Just wanted to let you know that this episode is actually part one of a two-part series. Just listen to this one first, okay? Enjoy the show. Here to help me sort through all this chaos is my dear friend and neighbor, Melita. Melita and I met because our neighbor, like, kind of hooked us Between up. Between us, yeah. yeah. It was like our, our girlfriend broker. So we friend dated for a hot minute. And her son and my kids just adore each other. So it's a more like a family situation now. All right, Melita, I know that there's cameras and microphones, but it's really a safe space. Have you ever worried that <laughs> Oliver may become criminal? I have never worried that he would become criminal or violent. But, you know, I only have my own experience to draw from. And being, you know, cis female, I just have worried about how to raise a boy, mm-hmm. and that I, you know, wanting to reject like these old tropes about masculinity mm-hmm. or what it means to be male. Yeah. However, I will say like toy guns, all that stuff really freaked me out in the beginning. So I had to do a little bit of education yeah. to understand that. And the research is pretty healthy on that. It's like, yeah. it's fine. Because if you don't give them the 4,000 Nerf gun, Rhino Fire, whatever's in my house, they'll just make a gun out of a stick. That's right. Yeah. I heard that they will, like like Dr. Michael Thompson, yeah. said that he observed Amish boys who'd <laughs> never been exposed to television bite a gun out of toast <laughs> and try to shoot each other across the table. So th- that one really stuck with me. Yeah. That it's just... I mean, it's years of evolution, of DNA. I mean, there's yeah. we. I always thought when I would think about gender issues, I'm just like, well, what does what I have between my legs mean about anything? And I'm like, actually, that double <laughs> X chromosome lives in every single cell of my body, um, except our gametes, which we pass on to our children. So it is. There are some some traits that are connected to double X or an XY. And my, I have a boy and a girl, and they fall pretty strictly into kind of gender stereotypes. And I hated that. I wanted my girl to be like more, you know, strong and traditionally boy stuff. And my boy to, I mean, he does dance like Michael Jackson really well. And he has some feminine dance moves too, but he's, they, they're generally pretty boy and pretty girl. And I was, I remember being kind of disappointed oh, really? about that, which is so stupid, but it's <laughs> a lot of things I do that are stupid. Anyway, this is not about me or even really you. It's about crime. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about a particular criminal and why I chose this criminal and why I chose you to be the guest with this criminal because you're super smart. Um, And this this criminal is meaningful because it introduces what I think will be, I hope to be, a whole host of cases that we can cover with parents because these are the types of crimes that there actually is something that I can literally point to and be like, we could have fixed that. We could have changed that. Most of them, there is something or there's like an idea that this could have helped or this. But this is one of those that that really sets the stage for pointing to an, a, a moment in time where something went wrong. We're going to be talking about a man named Antonio Bustamante. Does that ring a bell for you at all? I don't think so. 
But you, I'm kind of nervous. Don't be nervous because no, he's I'm not here. No, I'm nervous because, like, I might be thinking about it on my pillow yeah. for the next five but I'm months. Just three houses down. Okay. So you just come over. So I'll just knock okay. on your door. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Antonio. Antonio Bustamante. Here we go. A little bit of background before we dive in. Okay. Okay. So before I get into how this very peaceful, loving, wonderful man became a ruthless killer, I think some information about how we study crime is needed. Okay. So violent behavior and crime are very heterogeneous. And in any prison, you can lump like the maximum security prisoners, the most violent offenders, and you can take them all together. And so they're like already designated to be the worst of the worst. But if you look at all their crimes, Mm -hmm. you're still getting no two crimes alike. So you can have rape, assault, murder committed during robberies, which is different than a premeditated murder, which is very different from a crime of passion, multiple murders, spouse murders, killing your parents, intimate vicious murders by hand, where you're like right there with the body, Distant sniper killers who killed a bunch of people. Those are all very different criminals. Okay. They're very different criminals, which makes studying them very hard. Um, you know, they drum up the worst imaginable people in your head, most the worst crimes in your head, but they're not the same. So when you go to study it, it's hard. Plus, the criminals themselves can change their MOs over time, over their criminal lifetime. Mm-hmm. So they might start shooting somebody from far away, but then that's not enough. So then they get super close and they're super intimate with their crime. So when you go to, in a research setting, you really need to create a category for each one because the reasons they commit the crimes are different. The reasons, the the underpinnings, the influences, the correlates of their behavior are very different, even within these violent predators, these violent killers. So it makes the job of studying them really hard. Um, I mean, classifying them, for research purposes, is like it's not like studying diabetes, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like you have this. It's more like studying the last temptation of Christ, where it's like we weren't there. And there's a weird okay. book written about it, and you can interpret it in many different ways. The good news is that researchers um, have gotten really good at it. And I remember when we were doing all of this when I was in graduate school, identifying it in children. It was even more complicated because children kind of seem pretty antisocial and conduct disordered and pre criminals anyway, but. You can generally divide most crimes, most violent crimes, into two categories. Impulsive versus predatory. Hot-blooded versus cold-blooded. And what that means is the impulsive murders, think about it this way, the impulsive murders aren't planned. Mm -hmm. It's someone who cannot control themselves, their urges, in a heated moment in time, specific circumstances. It's driven by rage, adrenaline, think of passion, heat, jealousy, um, a fight with a girlfriend, Mm -hmm. a bar fight, a street fight. That is impulsive type killing. That is something we've seen come close to. We felt you know, in the middle of a fight. I'm like, I'm so glad I don't have a weapon. Um, <laughs> those are impulsive criminals. They're hot-blooded. Conversely, we have predatory criminals. Predatory criminals is exactly the image you've just drummed up in your brain, I imagine. It's a different beast. It's planned calmly. The crime is calculated. And it is served cold. Think of serial killers. The mechanisms, as I mentioned, behind these types of crimes are different, and the killer themselves are very, very different. And as I mentioned, the causes are different too. That's why you have to separate them. If we're trying to figure out what causes people to act like this, you got to make sure you don't lump them all together because it's going to sully your data and you're not going to find anything meaningful. It's important that I do this in these episodes because 
the way you treat a child who shows predatory precursors Mm -hmm. and how you treat the child who shows impulsive or hot-blooded precursors is very, very different. Just to make our lives more complicated. I mean, first we just have to keep them alive, but now we have to make sure that they're not killers. (laughs) (laughs) Also, your milk better be organic and you have to go to the right school. Yeah, totally. Yeah, there's so much to do. That said, let's hear about Antonio's crime. So in 1986, Antonio Bustamante broke into a home just to rob it. And he was ransacking the house, making a giant mess, and he didn't find any cash, but he found traveler's checks. There may or might not be some people in this room who don't know what those are because they're too young, but that was a thing we'd all travel with when you didn't want to bring. Remember, it's like so hard to get foreign currency. (laughs) You didn't want to use your credit card because there'd be all these fees for international usage. So he's in the middle of this burglary when the homeowner returned unexpectedly. And the homeowner was this tiny 80-year-old man. And he'd just gone to the local grocery store. So Antonio was not thinking this through, didn't know where he was. But instead of barreling past the owner, because Antonio's a big dude. Yeah, Yeah. he he could obviously get past an 80-year-old man. He beat him to death with his bare hands, with his bare fists. And it was so violent and vicious that blood spatter was found all over the apartment, ceiling, walls, everywhere. Like you're hitting somebody really, really, really hard with your fist to create that pattern. Yeah. It's really weird. I know that because of my uh, Muay Thai boxing. Oh, did you do that to somebody? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm learning. <laughs> so maybe don't come over to my house when you're scared. But this is not how Antonio's story began. And this is where it gets kind of sad. He was born in Mexico and his family moved to the United States when he was only 14. And by everybody's description, he was a sweet, loyal, family-oriented person, went to church, well-behaved. And even as a teenager, he was like a really good, law-abiding, normal kid. Like, not even like a rebellious teenager, just a good kid. Um, but then when he was in early his early 20s, everything changed, and it changed pretty much overnight. Antonio started becoming kind of impulsive, hot-tempered. He was picking fights getting in a lot of fights. Um, Then he started doing drugs. And of course, that leads to stealing to support the drug habit. And then he's just in and out of jail for nearly two decades. He's just, I mean, he's, he now looks like the killers whose trajectory started much earlier on, but his Mm -hmm. is overnight. Um, What happened? How did this great person, great kid, take such a horrible left turn? To figure that out, let's skip ahead to see what Antonio did after his terrible grisly crime. So he's in this apartment. He gets scared. He's ransacking. He gets scared. Instead of running out, he's like, ah, I'm going to kill you. Kills this poor defenseless man. I really don't like Antonio. And then he leaves evidence everywhere. The guy's dead. He could have cleaned up his DNA, but he doesn't. He's so careless and so sloppy Hmm. that when he went to go cash the traveler's checks, there's blood all over them. And if that wasn't bad enough, I know. He's not my—he's not the oh. smartest of the killers. If that wasn't bad enough, he didn't even bother to change out of his bloody clothes. clothes. Oh, God. He was in them when they arrested him. So his messy murder is essentially the opposite of the cold, calculating right. murders we've all seen before and we think of, right? Even if you're not a serial killer, even if you're an impulsive type killer, this was particularly sloppy. It's like just the consequences, yeah. the forward thinking is absent altogether. Now we fast forward to his trial in 1990, and Bustamante had been charged with crimes 29 times before he had bungled the burglary and killed that little old man. Mm -hmm. 
The prosecution, of course, sought the death penalty, and they rested their case on he was motivated by uh, money for drugs. He killed this defenseless victim who never stood a chance. Like, he has no mercy. This guy's a monster. He's horrible. And that is kind of what it drums up in your mind. You're thinking of this large, you know, man in his 20s destroying— I mean. An 80-year-old man's a fragile person, usually. Oh, yeah. I mean, my ex-father-in-law, you know, still can hike 35 miles in five minutes, but most of them are not, and this guy was not. So all of this sounds like the the kind of the climax of a very career, typical career criminal. And it would seem like he would be like a well-seasoned pro who had had a lifetime of bad behavior before this, but he didn't. Here's the rub. He was like a saint before the age of 22. And that is just not a normal trajectory for a criminal. We see oppositional defiant disorder in children. We see conduct disorder. Most of them grow out of it. But usually a criminal like this didn't grow out of that. Mm-hmm. So the trajectory is pretty standard. It's, that's what it looks like. Overnight like this to go from an altar boy, it's it. there's a reason why you can, when you look up um, what we're going to get into next, his name is the first one that pops up because this is just one of those cases where it is um, because of a brilliant defense attorney All of our, kind of the way we look at this has changed a bit. Enter Chris Plord, Antonio Bustamante's defense attorney. Now, I worked with Chris Plord many, many years after this. I was the jury consultant, the trial consultant on the first Phil Spector murder trial. And Chris Plord was one of the lead attorneys. He handled mainly our forensics and he was brilliant and he was a great a great man, and he had a pin on his bag that said um, forensic odontology. That's like bite marks, like crimes that are si- uh-huh. solved by bite marks. And it said, had a pendulum like, or some like sort of mechanism swing, and it says your guess is as good as mine because it's really hard. It's a very hard thing to do to, to put somebody in jail because of a bite mark. Anyway, he is now a judge. He's a successful judge in San Diego, I believe, and he's doing really well. He's a brilliant guy. He's a very kind, brilliant guy. And when he is doing this case, he knows enough. I mean, Antonio's a lucky dude because Chris knew enough to be like, this is weird. Why? This is not the normal criminals I'm defending. This guy's like finished school, loves his family, normal. What happened? And he had the wherewithal to try to dig through his background and see if he could find something that could have caused this incredible change. Most attorneys don't do this. And he discovered that Bustamante had severed major head trauma by the way of a freaking crowbar oh at age God. 20. And then he had a car crash right after that that damaged his brain. Crowbar, then car yeah. accident. And you'll see this. Once you've had some brain damage, you usually become impulsive. Well, depending on where the brain damage is, of course. So the crowbar Frontal. damage was, you know, in the area right here, prefrontal cortex. Once you do that, you become more impulsive. So you do, like he's probably driving his car recklessly. I don't know that. I don't know what kind of car crash he was in. But we see that a lot. We see that the first injury leads to the next injury. It's unfortunate. And then there's just more brain damage. Got to keep your brain safe. So Chris, the attorney, being so well-versed in science, he knew this meant something. And that was an incredibly lucky break for Bustamante. Chris had Bustamante's brain scanned. So this is a picture of a normal brain. This would be as if you were looking down. It's a bird's mm-hmm. eye view, okay? So it's like you're looking down inside of you. Like you just slice the head mm-hmm. open like this. Yeah, I went to Bodies, New York. Yeah, oh, it was a good show. <laughs> you're like, I, I know what you're looking at. So this is I a normal brain. Don't remember. And this is the prefrontal cortex. This is the area right behind the, the yeah. forehead we're talking about. And this is what 
um, is you, they're your emergency brakes. They inhibit any bad behavior. They have a lot to do with executive functioning. This area is a lot of your personality. I feel like that's here. the only part of the brain I actually know about. Oh, good. It's because, the, an important part. Yeah, it's like the latest to develop, right? It's the latest to develop, which is why they're looking at male criminals differently, like young, youthful yeah. male criminals. Well, this is normal. See this right here? Yeah. This is oh. glucose metabolism. These bright colors, the red, orange, yellow. This means that area of the brain is working well. It's mm -hmm. it's activated. It's metabolizing glucose. And we'll talk about what that means later. This is Bustamante's brain. It's cold, green, purple, blue. Nothing much. Why is the red on the side? Well, they've got some temporal lobe stuff yeah. happening. Okay. And this you expect the back here in like the, yeah. the, the back areas of the brain, the visual cortex, like you expect all of that to be the same in him. His damage was here. Yeah. So you expect like there's a lot going on here, but that's part of the limbic system we'll talk about later. In the end, the jury believed that Bustamante's brain was not normal, and they spared him from the death penalty. He was still punished. He's still sent to prison, but he wasn't. It's California. California has the death penalty, although we haven't executed somebody since, like, I think the 70s, but it, it does exist here. So what am I talking about? Why does it matter? What does it mean to have damage to the prefrontal cortex? Like your friend. Did, your, did you know your friend's boyfriend? When I was in college, the girl who lived next to me in the dorm, uh -huh. her boyfriend fell off the wall mm. to get to her, like, dorm room. Oh, no. And same thing. He, his personality totally changed. Totally. Probably hit his... Right yeah. behind his forehead, yeah. prefrontal cortex. So I lived in, you know, my dorm in college, and the girl next door was this beautiful creature, and she had a boyfriend that didn't go to our school. Oh, rebel. And um, for some reason, instead of just walking into the dorm as one could, he decided to hop the wall. Mm. And I remember she woke me up in the middle of the night, and his head was bleeding profusely, and I'm like 20, and don't know how to react, never seen anything yeah, like that before. because the head bleeds a lot. And she was hysterical. And um, anyway, like, we got him to the hospital or whatever, but he had a major dramatic personality change. Personality change. Like, he was, like, this loving, tender, like, um, they had a lot of chemistry. Mm. And then he kind of got more cold. Mm. Um, more machismo, and she felt very emotionally disconnected from him. And this is before, like, you know, this is in the late 90s. Um, this is before all the football stuff, NFL, right. and, like, all this awareness about head trauma. And I attribute it to the night he fell off the wall. Because she can point to the moment in time. Mm -hmm. So he when, it's, when it happens like this, it's important to pay attention to what happens later, right? Yeah. Because there are things you can do. So what does it matter? Why does it matter if you damage the prefrontal cortex of your brain? Well, we used to not know why it mattered, but in comes Phineas Gage. Does, do you remember him? No. So Phineas Gage, in 1848, he was this 25-year-old foreman. <laughs> right. I don't recall. Um, <laughs> from 1848. From 1848. You don't remember? I know he's in every textbook <laughs> now, though, right? Isn't he? Every Plate is America's best value meal kit with delicious dinners that don't break the bank. In fact, one meal from Every Plate is the same price as one cup of coffee. Skip the store and let Every Plate plan, shop, and deliver everything you need to cook a delicious meal at a consistently low price. Every Plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping, and their quality ingredients come pre-portioned to help you save money and reduce 
food waste. You know, like the bag of spinach you throw out every week. Every plate offers options for everybody. Choose from classic plate, veggie plate, family plate, and easy plate preferences to serve up crowd-pleasing meals night after night. I have tried every meal kit, and I usually find that I'm spending more money than if I had gone out to dinner. Not the case with every plate. I really do save money, and they give me menus that I wouldn't have thought of. My favorite was a pork linguine. Who makes pork linguine? It was delicious. Get started today with every plate for just $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering how not 179. That's everyplate.com, code how not 179. Okay, so back in 1848, where Melita was not, there was a man named Phineas Gage, and he was 25, and he was the foreman of this cutting crew to make more railroad in Vermont. And on September 13th, he was using a tamping iron, to sound familiar, to pack explosive powder into a hole. You know, they're like blowing through rocks Mm -hmm. and stuff. They needed this shit that needs to go away. The tamping iron, which is 43 inches long, 1.25 inches in diameter, and weighing... 13 oh, and a quarter God. pounds. I don't want to hear it. You have next. to. You oh, have to hear God. it. God, I know. I'm sorry. No, I can't live alone with all of this stuff in my brain. <laughs> it shot skyward. Skyward? It shot skyward, penetrating Gage's left cheek, ripped into his brain, oh, and Lord. exited through his skull, landing dozens of feet away. Holy moly. Right? You should be dead. Why isn't he oh, dead? Yeah, and he lived through it. He did. Though blinded in his left eye, He might not even have lost consciousness, some of the people around him said. And he actually remained awake and savvy enough to tell a doctor, that day, here is business enough for you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, he made a joke. (laughs) That's the beginning of our prefrontal cortex damage. He's joking about that. So his initial survival shocked everybody. And of course, it made him a freaking celebrity. Everyone's like, Phineas! But his name was etched into history by observations made by this guy, John Martin Harlow, the doctor who treated him for a few months afterward. And he's like, Gage's friends are like, Phineas Gage is no longer Gage. And this is how what Harlow wrote about talking to his friends. The balance between his intellectual faculties and animal propensities seemed gone. So what he meant by animal propensities, that like primal urges the guy Mm -hmm. had, Mm -hmm. he could no longer control. Foreshadowing. What part of the brain controls our urges is that flipping part of the brain that Mm -hmm. he just had a rod go through. He couldn't stick to plans. He uttered the grossest profanity and showed showed Mm -hmm. little deference for his others. The railroad construction company that had formerly employed him and described him as the model foreman obviously couldn't take him back anymore. So Gage went to work at a stable in New Hampshire. Fine. But then he went to go drive coaches in Chile, which begs a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Like the first is like you just... Yeah, how did he get how there? How did he get there? And why did he think of going there from... But then there's... why is he driving a car with a hole in his head and an eye missing and really <laughs> impulsive, crazy behavior? There are lots more things to Phineas that I need to dive into. Did he just wear like a Phantom of the Opera mask to no, cover No, I think he actually enjoyed gash? the reaction. Oh, really? I've read that he enjoyed the reaction, especially from children or something like that. I don't know. He, I, I read that he enjoyed oh. the reaction that people gave him. Okay. Feeling a lot of empathy for Phineas Gage Well, he right can't. Nobody's just working. He's foreman but doing his job. Unless you're going to tell me he committed a violent crime. No, he actually didn't. But he was definitely, his whole personality became aggressive you know, moderately, mildly violent, I'd say, and just a totally different person. Um, But this is so important for neuroscience. This is the most famous patient 
because it showed us the first real link between brain trauma and personality oh, change. In this book, in his book, An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Cage, I bet we could find out more details in that oh, book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the University of Melbourne's Malcolm McMillan writes that two-thirds of introductory psychology textbooks mentioned Gage. Even today, his skull, the tamping iron, and a mask of his face made when he was alive are the most sought-out items at the Warren Anatomical Museum on the Harvard Medical School campus. Whoa. Mm-hmm. So I'm like one of the people who doesn't know about him. Well, you probably weren't studying no. psychology and violence mm -hmm. and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff in college. And so you wouldn't need to know yeah. about Phineas. But you know what everyone should know and I don't think enough people know? What? 60% of criminals in prison have head injuries. That's the estimate by scientists. Wow. Just by taking samples and using, we've done, I've done it, research on them. Let's say the number again, 60% for those in the back. Yeah. How is this not a thing? How is it not what we're doing preventatively and what we're doing to treat them to lower recidivism? Why aren't we totally focused on head trauma? What's re recidivism? When you go, you commit a crime, you go to jail, you serve your time, you get out, and you do it again. Oh. Yeah. Repeat. Recidivate. Yeah. Okay. Recidivate. Do you know that there are some countries for which there's almost zero recidivism? That's because they they treat them very differently once they get in there. And they do bring medical doctors in right yeah. away and psychologists yes. and all that. Mental health support. Mental health support. Huh. They don't put them in the yard together working out with all the testosterone and all the stuff. They, they treat them differently. We have a pretty archaic, um, draconian prison system. Yeah. But anyway, they're, they're working on changing. Like the places and the people, there are pilot studies in these prisons doing what we're going to talk about next, that we're going to talk about a little bit. But I just want to, I want to keep saying it because if people really love true crime and if there are people out there who want to reduce it and then they'll have less true crime to listen to or watch, but still probably a good idea, mm -hmm. um, that's a good place to start for you. I get a phone call at least once a month from a young, excited college student who's like, how did you do this? And where did you break in? And this is where I'm like, you guys, there are places to really make a difference, and this is one of them. Hmm. This is kind of still one of those frontiers. There's, the research is out there. You don't have to go do the research, but work an application yeah. and how to apply what we know. And that's what this whole podcast is about. It's like, we know all these things, but no one talks about them in true crime world. So I'm trying to still entertain true crime listeners, but also be like, hey, guys, at your next true crime you know, coffee talk, you can talk about things that can be done. Although maybe, I don't know. Maybe it's not as interesting to everybody, but I think it's really interesting because, well, like, for example, the person who wrote the, that book I was just holding, a mentor of mine named Adrian Rain, when I was at USC getting my PhD, I was his research assistant in his lab for two years, and he knew this. He knew, hey, we don't know what the, what it is, but we know there's some biological stuff happening. Mm -hmm. We know that it's not just all environment. The social psychologists are right in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of environmental trauma triggers that can lead somebody down the path of criminal behavior. Not arguing that that's not there, but there's more to it. There's biology, and we have to look at it. So we measured the brains of murderers who had never been caught. Um, which but I covered. You caught them to measure well, their brains. No, we didn't catch them. <laughs> I covered it in another episode, but I'll... I'll I'll sum it up again here. He teamed up with Monty Buxbaum, who was, I think, at UC Irvine, and they looked at 41 murderers' brains, including Bustamante's. They looked at Bustamante's brain, and they did this in a PET scan. So remember I showed you that mm -hmm. picture? So PET scan measures the metabolic activity in various areas of the brain. What they do is they inject you with a radioactive dye, and mm -hmm. then they would have these guys do a boring task that would um, 
retain their attention. It requires sustained attention. It's like maybe listening to this podcast for 30 minutes <laughs> when I go on my shit like this. But they no, they'd have them like, pay attention when the O pops up. Anyway, they'd stick them in a scanner and those areas would light up. So basically when we're talking about the impulsive killers, there was no very reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex. So it's all blue and green, mm -hmm. whereas a normal control, a non-murderer, it's red and yeah, like us. So know. all of them had that pattern. And it wasn't easily explained by other things. They controlled for background drug use, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Now, I was just a child when all of Bustamante's trial went down. But 17 years later, when I was listening to Chris tell me this story when we worked together on that case I told you about, mm -hmm. I was left feeling two things. One, all of this work that we've been doing in research, in academia, really fucking matters. And two, what the hell? That trial and his smart thinking about, let me look at brain damage in this guy, was in 1990. Yeah. I mean— in sync, Backstreet yeah. Boys weren't even around yet. That's how yeah. long ago that was. Yeah, John Hughes new, movies. New Kids on the Block. New Kids that's, on the we Block. We weren't even, yeah, we're at the predecessor of I was wearing fluorescent headbands mm -hmm. and trying to get seniors to look at me. It No, this is not okay. How do, do people still not have any idea about this when we are now in, you know, 2022? Right. And we're still, like, everyone's shocked if I tell them, you know, head trauma, right. prison. A lot of this information just gets stuck in the ivory tower. Huh. And this might make some people mad, and I'm guilty of this too. There's a lot of information that's hard to get out into the private sector, but academicians can be kind of a little hoardy with their information. And you don't want it to get out because it can be misappropriated if you don't understand the research. Right. You know, there's a, there's a lot of correlations we talk about in research. People can take that and run with it. But come on, some of this is so well replicated and it's so important. So what is the truth? What is the relationship between damaged brain and bad behavior? Well, prefrontal damage, poor functioning, let's say it that way, in the prefrontal cortex can, and almost always will, affect a person in the following ways. Emotionally, you're a hot mess. And I've talked about this in other podcasts. Um, the limbic system, the area of our brain that's responsible for urges, like rage, it's a primitive part of the brain. Mm -hmm. It's deep in the brain. And it is controlled by our very fancy, human-only, sophisticated prefrontal cortex. So those are our brakes that stop those urges. And without that, you know, the rage is going to win. So you're emotionally a mess. You're all those impulses. You're, you're, you know, when you're dramatic and you're sad and you're extreme, mm -hmm. it, that's all happening because you can't stop it. Um, number two, the damage in this area leads to risk taking and rule breaking. Yeah. Because no one's home to control that pesky limbic system that's giving you urges to do that. Number three, personality. That's Pandora's box. No self control. You can't modify your behavior. You're socially immature. You're not. You lack all the good judgment. Mm -hmm. You're not fun at a party anymore. Or maybe you are, depending you're on the way you like to party. Fun, you're super fun. Like, yeah, depends on like... your party. And number five, cognitively, you're just you're just stupider now. So that's a clinical stupider. term. Stupider. Stupider now. Mm. So it's not a far stretch to see how all of those five changes, emotionally, cognitively, behaviorally, et cetera, et cetera, can lead to criminal behavior. Right? You're getting rejected. You drop out of school. Oh, yeah. You're down on your luck. You're down on your luck. You have no money. You get into drugs. You start, you need money to, to do the drugs. No one likes you. You don't get invited mm. to the birthday parties. Your parents are like, huh? You know, there's a lot right. of reasons that you, it, it can, it's a slippery slope. And yeah. so even petty crime, 
But of course. petty crime can lead to bigger crime, et cetera, et cetera. So fun note, at the time of the trial, the prosecutor, the guy who's trying to get Bustamante the death penalty, his mm-hmm. name's John Beard, he called all of this research hocus pocus. He said, bright colored pictures can't explain why someone slaughters someone else 20 years later. Where's that gem of a person? Well, actually, to his credit, and to a degree is right, right? We're like, everything isn't overnight. We can't yeah. be like, oh, look, the brain's wonky. You're free. But as you said, like, it means something. Like, what? what's yeah, his thinking on that now? It's information. Yeah. And are we all, in, do we all have equal control of our free will and our in, like understanding of right from wrong? You know, looks like not maybe with these brains. But hmm. yeah, this is so interesting. And I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. John Beard still has that photo of Bustamante's brain, I heard, framed in his office. I was just going to say. Yeah. So you're on to, you're very prescient. Is it to <laughs> remind him that research has changed in terms of the causes of crime, that not all men are created equal, to impose the important question of free will, how responsible is someone for a crime if they are biologically limited right. in their self-control? Or is it to remind him of the new defenses that people will put forth to get away with murder? Who knows? Yeah. You know, but... The, the intellectual flexibility that you lack when you have this type of brain damage, you know, and the, the impulse, the fist fights lead to, lead to getting kicked out of school, lead to drugs, so you get the picture. I am not at all, I want to be clear, advocating that people with brain damage aren't pulled away, violent murderers with brain damage aren't pulled away from society at large. Obviously, right. they're a threat. And that something needs to be done. I'm not saying that. But I do think it is a mitigating circumstance when you've had, you know, your brain bashed in in a crowbar. Meaning, of course, you have to be removed. Hopefully, you do something before the person becomes criminal. And mm-hmm. there are things we can do. So hopefully you do that. But it is it does beg some judicial questions when yeah. there's a biological cause for right. you know, aggressive With behavior. such a high percentage. I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that that's not for nothing, right? Right. Antonio is such a great illustration of the brain damage violence relationship because we can point to the exact moment of the brain damage, but it isn't always that simple. It's hard to pinpoint where it came from. There's a lot of brain damage in childbirth, and this is a scary, you've had your babies, but this is a scary thing. Um, forcep deliveries, mm-hmm. it, you have to have a really skilled physician doing the forcep delivery. It's meant to open the cervix and like you do do some tugging of the baby, but if placed incorrectly, it does, it can crush areas of the of the skull. Um, in my birth plan, it was like no forceps under any circumstance unless there was like a shoulder dystocia right, or right. something where the baby is stuck in the canal and there's no going back for a C-section and oxygen's being cut off. Because right, right. by the way, that can make you a murderer too, cutting off oxygen to the brain oh of gosh. the fetus. There's just so many scary things. No, childbirth is very scary. It's violent and it's and scary. it's traumatic mm-hmm. because... Think about it all the time. You think about it all the time. I think about mine all the time. Yeah. 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 So, you know, but there are some places where, you know, and there's some instances where you have to use a forceps. Like you just have to use forceps. But it was more mainstream before we knew all these things. Exactly. Uh, Doctors shy away from it a lot more now. It's a little more dangerous. A lot less, lot fewer lawsuits associated with C-sections anyway. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not, doesn't happen as commonly, but in that, in those cases, or even like you drop your baby on its head. The person's a baby. So we don't know what the changes in personality would have been. Mm-hmm. We don't know what the child mm-hmm. would have been like before the trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little harder to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, they still might be hot-headed, impulsive, conduct disordered, and eventually maybe become criminal. But you don't have a reference for who they would have been but not for that brain damage. Right. Um, 
Conversely, you may have many prisoners whose head trauma came much later in life. So you can have boxers, fighters, like trained fighters, street fighters, speed demons, football players, football players that's right here, yeah. motorcycle riders who suffered head injury, even even seemingly mild ones with head with helmets on, they can end up with similar personality changes. And the problem with studying those groups is that most of them were relatively impulsive to begin with. I'm ah, not saying everybody who gets into these are it's yeah. impulsive, but you find it more there. Hmm. It's harder to measure because if you get on a motorcycle, right. you might be a sensation seeker anyway. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. If you're interested in if, fighting. Right. If you want to be an MMA fighter. Yeah. You know, and I know you want to get on a motorcycle. Would, right. You are seeking a thrill. Right. So there might be something fundamentally different before you get the head injury from right. the population without it. Right. So it's like just harder to free study. Like solo, like the guy who will climb up the thing. Oh, that's a, I think he's a psychopath and he is looking for a sensation-seeking low has, resting heart rate, low autonomic yeah. arousal, which covered that in other episodes. So if you look at the part of the brain, if you look at where this happens right behind the forehead, if you're being punched in the face or being jettisoned off of a moving vehicle, where are you going to hit? Or like racing down a mountain on skis and there's a tree in front of you. Mm -hmm. What part of your brain do you think is getting hit? Right. And that's not inconsequential. Your forehead basically is the part that's getting hit. And poor prefrontal functioning is the best replicated correlate of violence. Head injuries are really, really important. They really matter when it comes to who your kid's going to be, what's going to happen to somebody. You hit your head, you got to pay attention. So what the hell? Like, great, thanks. Every mom is like, uh. Yeah. This is, now this concludes Scared Straight with Michelle Ward. <laughs> right. But think about all the <laughs> listeners who are like, I, my kid has already done that. Oh, no. I'm sitting yeah. here. First of all, I have a list of five people that I question if they have had prefrontal cortex damage in my life, <laughs> yeah. right, that I interact with. And then second of like you won't see us on bikes anymore in okay. the neighborhood. No, so I don't want to do that. And I talk about that a little bit because that can happen. And actually, I just read an article this morning when I was getting ready for this talking about that. What can be done about head injuries? Let's let's do the basics first. Freaking prevent them. Yeah. My poor friends call me every single time they their kid hits their head and I'll get a panic call. And my poor friend, Heidi, who I've known, I don't remember ever not knowing her. She hates me for all the shit I tell her. She does not want to know. And when her kids, you know, hit hit their heads, I'll get the call. But kids hit their heads a lot. And we need to say that. And their heads are a little bit more plastic than ours are. Mm -hmm. Um, You can try to eliminate the really obvious cases of head injury, like skiing without a helmet, riding a motorcycle, playing football in the 80s. It's gotten much Mm -hmm. better. Trampolines without nets. Doing the heavy hitting with the soccer. You know, they used to be football. Yeah, no headers. No headers. And... The good news is there actually is stuff you can do after the head injury happens. So the goal is to prevent the head injury. Bikes. Let's talk about bicycles. You just said now I'm not gonna, you're not going to see us in the neighborhood riding bikes. You can ride bikes. So there's a paradoxical finding with bike helmets, and I think it's an important one, and cyclists all around the world are going to be irritated. But a well-fitted bike helmet on anybody, including a child, I, it's like 75 – reduces death by 75% if struck by a motor vehicle. Some huge percentage – However, other injuries have increased since we started wearing bike helmets. The numbers of bikers have decreased because they don't want to wear the helmet, and now it's law in a lot of places. Different bodily injuries have increased, and they think it might be because of a false sense of security. security. 
but you still have to wear the damn helmet and don't let me leave the podcast or let you leave it without hearing that part because like I said, especially if it's going to be car versus cyclist, you have a much better chance of living. No, I'm just wearing a helmet when I drive my car now. I think you know <laughs> this. That so. honestly, it's not a bad idea. We also <laughs> should drive our car backwards because that's a much safer position, which is why we put our kids backwards as long as you can. There are car seats for four-year-olds that face backwards. And I was that dork. Literally, my friend Caitlin is like, I cannot be friends with you because you are such a dork. And I'm like, okay, but statistically, if I'm going to show you my dorkiness, this is the place to do it because, yeah. you know, drowning and car accidents are the best way to kill your children. Backwards position is the way to do it, guys. And it includes head injury. So keep your kids backwards as long. I know. And you're going to be that dorky mom. And I was that dorky mom. But um, it just is a much safer position for the kid. And, and remember that kids can have that their brain, they're, they're, they're not, their bones aren't ossified. So you can have right. an, an internal, internal decapitation in a car accident oh with children. God, I know everyone's oh turning off this podcast. I'm going to stop talking. Let's go back to murder. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, murder is sorry. way more palatable <laughs> than talking about. I'm um, sorry I do this. <laughs> and finally, somebody's letting me. <laughs> Please give me more of the murder stuff, which okay. I started out I know. being afraid of hearing. I'm like, do you want to come on my murder podcast? Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to guilt you about turning Oliver forward too soon in his car seat. He's going to be like 15. Facing the back. How Not to Raise a Serial Killer is a Cloud 10 media production. Executive produced by me, Dr. Michelle Ward, and Sim Sarna. Our editor is Emily Crane. Our music was created by Josh Cook, with artwork provided by Brian Stefanik. Follow us on Instagram at How Not to Raise a Serial Killer and on TikTok and Twitter at Hentrask. That's at HN. T-R-A-S-K. And if you'd like to share a story or ask a question, you can email us at hownottoraiseaserialkiller at gmail.com or call and leave a voicemail at 818-392-4403. If you like our show, do me a favor and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. After all, if more people know about the show, maybe fewer kids will turn into serial killers. Who knows? Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.